Good evening. Welcome to WCF and our midweeks service where we push the pause button and come into God's presence to be refreshed and reminded of who he is, what he's done for us. Welcome. We're so glad that each one of you are here in the room with us, and we're also glad that all of you are with us online. Welcome, and we're going to gather and we're going to worship God through song. We're going to worship God through the word and some time in prayer towards the end, and uh, just give God the honor and glory that's due his name. Tonight, as we turn our attention to worship, let me read 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are tonight if you've given your heart over to the Lord Jesus Christ you are his child you are the father's child and uh, he loves us deeply and he loves it when we come into his presence and worship him so I invite you to stand and let's think about being a child of God and as we're a child of God we don't have to fear anymore because he's taken our fear and given us peace, hope, and a reason to live. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to John chapter 16. We're going to pick up in verse 5 yeah, as we continue journeying through the Bible and in our study here in John. A couple of things that I want to bring to your attention um, yeah, as, as we get ready. And, and one of which that I want to share with you is answer to prayer. Do you believe in prayer? Does prayer work? Yeah, it does. It connects us with the heart of God and the plans of God and the purposes of God. And whenever God does something just incredible and, and miraculous uh, with that, we want to celebrate that for sure. Because it, there are some things that, that we just don't get. It's above our pay grade. So... One of our worship leaders, James Ford, had um, a head injury, which caused a brain bleed, and put him in the hospital, created some paralysis, and just really messed him up. And when you talked with him, you, 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 you kind of knew. He was saying some things that he probably <laughs> it wasn't making much sense. We went and visited him. I think he was a short week in ICU and, and, and couldn't hardly move his... I think it was his left left arm and, and, and left leg and was just really struggling. And this was about six weeks ago. About six weeks ago. Well, he happened to be at uh, Men's Coffee on Tuesday. And he was here on Monday. And he's driving. And he's playing his guitar. Now, when you, when you, if you know anybody that's ever had any kind of brain injury like that, it takes a long time to get back those deficits and those things. And when God does a miracle just to show off, He does it. And I think God was showing off. So it was cool. We can keep praying for His recovery, but it's encouraging to me and should be encouraging to you that there are a number of things that happen like that where God does both the big things and the small things where He reveals Himself in a mighty, mighty way. And we experience that through prayer and, and through being able to, to experience these things. And there are some things about God that, again, we just don't get, but we experience. And, and one of those things is when we engage with the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit, and He, a person, is in spirit and has been given to us and as a gift. As Jesus would leave, he would send the Holy Spirit. And as we pick up here in John 16, Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples as they're leaving the upper room. They're crossing the Kidron Valley, coming up on the other side, getting ready to go to Gethsemane. Jesus is about to be betrayed by Judas and the Roman soldiers. They're all gearing up because they're going to go after this. And Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples because he has to prepare them for his departure. And so he's giving, him, giving them all these last words. And so in John's account, we get these snippets. And the first snippet is dealing with the Holy Spirit. We can know a lot about the Father through the person Jesus. And for the disciples, having Jesus present was very comforting. 
But the idea of Jesus going away was freaking them out. The fact that their, their rabbi, their teacher, would be gone, and then they would be left to try to figure things out on their own. Or so they thought. Because Jesus would not leave them alone. He would give to them the Holy Spirit. He has to leave because that was the part of the Father's plan. The redemptive part of God's plan was that the Son would come, add to Himself humanity, walk on this earth sinless, experience everything that we experience, and then die as a substitute for us and atone for our sins, rise again three days later, and ascend to the Father. That's the plan. But part of the plan that they didn't get was when Jesus would leave, He would send the Holy Spirit to birth the church. As we're going to take a look at within this. The sending of the Holy Spirit really is the next phase. And what is His mission to do? What is the Holy Spirit supposed to do? Well, Jesus explains phase two of the birth of the church to the disciples, who again are clueless, bless their heart, but they'll get it over time. But one of the things that we got to understand is that the Holy Spirit has come into this world to not only birth the church, but to bring conviction of sin and to reveal truth to the heart of mankind. The only way you and I can take a look at God's Word and have it make any sense is through the work of the Holy Spirit. If we were not born again and if the Holy Spirit wasn't present with us, we would read this stuff and it would be Greek to us. We wouldn't understand it. And so it's necessary for this to take place. Take place. In fact, Jesus is, is having this conversation. He's continuing this conversation actually from John 15, verses 26 to 27, where he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He, being a person, will testify about Me, and you will testify also, because you have been with Me from the beginning. And so it was a plan all along that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell believers and to give to us that new life and bridge that gap between Jesus and, and man himself. So let's jump right in, beginning with verse 4 of chapter 16, the last part of it. So we'll, we'll just start at the beginning because it's easy. But these things I've spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now, you see how it picks up? But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, if I have many more things to say to you, but you can't hear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I've said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, we look at that, and so what is the one thing that he does? Well, first he says, I'm sending you a helper. I'm sending you a helper. You are not going to have to try to figure this out on your own. One of the things that, that can be so devastating in our life is when trials and tribulations come and you get hit in the face with it and then you go, what am I going to do? How am I going to navigate this? What's going on? I don't know. I don't know how to pay the bill. I don't know how to take care of this illness. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to go through this conflict. What am I going to do? For the believer, you don't have to try to figure it out. What you can do is stop and pray. And you say, God, what am I going to do? Prayer connects us 
to the heart of God and the Holy Spirit is the communicator. He is the one that is the paraclete. The one that comes alongside you to encourage you, to teach you, to bring truth to life. Jesus says, but now he's returning to heaven. But now means that there's a change. We don't like change. We like things the way that they are. We like to come and find our same seat. We come to find our same parking spot. We like our same food. We like our same restaurants. We like all of that stuff. But when you have to change, it's scary. And, and it's hard to adjust to all of these changes. And up until now, Jesus has been with the disciples and have led them. They haven't had to think. Jesus did all the thinking for them. They didn't have to make decisions. What's it going to be like when Jesus leaves them? Now, up until now, Jesus really hasn't spent a whole lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit with the disciples because he wanted to give to them all the things that they needed to learn. And then by training them, the purpose of the Holy Spirit would come in and then remind them in that which was already taught to them, that which they've already experienced within that, to come in and to bring to them the truth and the insight. He's the comforter and the teacher. Because, quite frankly, we all need help, don't we? Some of us need more help than others. I'm one of them. I, I, I need lots of help. And, and that's through that prayer. Now, one of the things that we, we can't miss is the fact that Jesus notes their unbelief, their, their astonishment. They're so blown away, they don't even ask, where are you going? Now, Jesus has already, and we've covered it multiple times. Jesus already says, I go to the Father. He's already had these conversations with them. John chapter 13, um, he talked with them. Thomas in, in John 14. And so within this, they're not asking him right now. Why? Because verse 6 says, Jesus explains, the reason why they're not asking is because sorrow has filled your heart. Grief is horrible. And the thought of losing somebody instills this idea of grief or this sense of loss. And when you lose that person, when that person is no longer in your life, and, and as a chaplain and going out on a ton of calls, one of the things that people will almost always say, how am I going to go on? What am I going to do next? Why? Because they can never fathom their life without this individual. Especially if the person was the leader in, in the family and, and that caregiver within this. Jesus says, I'm going to him who sent me. And you're not asking. The reason why you're not asking is because your heart's breaking. And you've got to picture this in your mind. It's dark. They're walking across the Kidron Valley which is this, this little short valley. It's just a draw. It, it, it's probably only in about a 15-minute walk, a 20-minute walk. Out of, the, out of the east gate, there on the east side of Jerusalem, walking across this valley, coming up to the other side, and on the other side of this hill is a olive grove that is there. It's all dark, and you're going to see little campfires that are there. People camping out from staying over there for the Passover, and they're going out. And they've already had a lot of teaching. They've had the Passover meal. They've had the foot washing. They've had the upper room discourse. They've had Judas pull his stuff. They've had all of these different things going on, and, and it's becoming real. Very surreal within this. And their hearts are sorrowful at the news that Jesus was leaving them, this overwhelming grief. It's interesting that word grief is lupe. And it means a strong mental state of pain and anxiety. Have you ever had that kind of grief? Where you just couldn't speak? That is the condition that they're in. And so within this, the disciples are struggling and they don't understand God's plan. God, how can you be a loving God to give us Jesus and now take him away from us at such an early time? We've only had three years really with him. How is it that's part of your plan? 
Well, it's part of God's plan because Jesus had to become the sacrifice for your sins. And Jesus would have to leave, as we will study, to be the advocate for us in heaven. Seated at the right hand of the Father to be our covering, to intercede for us in our prayers. But He doesn't leave. The plan is, I'm going to send you somebody. The Holy Spirit. And they're like, the who? I don't get this. I don't get it. God, how can there be anybody better than Jesus? But it was God's plan that the Holy Spirit would come and birth the church. As I said earlier, Jesus had a specific function. To come, to be born, to live, and to die, to rise again and be the atonement for our sins. But He was only able to be in one place at one time and teach a limited number of people. Is the Holy Spirit restricted to one place at one time? No. Present in the life of every believer. Able to teach one-on-one that believer according to the Word of God. And He would remain the Holy Spirit within the church as the church would be born until the time when the church is raptured or taken out. Then the tribulation would take place, the seven years of judgment upon the earth and God dealing with Israel once again. And then... Jesus would return back to this earth and set up His kingdom. There's a whole plan laid out. And Jesus says, I'd like to teach you more, but you can't handle that. Let's just focus on one thing. And keep the main thing the main thing. The problem is, we want to understand the total plan so many times, don't we? God, give me the whole plan. God's like, no, no, no. You can't handle what I gave you. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. Within this. And we struggle to understand God's plan, don't we? God, I want to know. And he's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. It would be too overwhelming. So we live one day at a time. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are led by the Spirit of God one day at a time. And we trust in Him. And God's plans are good. Why? Because God is good. But explain to me how watching your best friend die on a cross is good. It's good because of the outcome. Because Jesus had to go through the the cross to get to the tomb, to get to the resurrection, to pay for the penalty of our sins. But we don't get that. And so within this, we understand that, that there is this plan and Jesus is giving this plan. Jeremiah 29, 11, as God would speak to the nation of Israel through Jeremiah. He says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And so many times we have to walk through devastation and loss to get to the good stuff. But it builds our faith and it builds our confidence. It was necessary for Jesus to leave, verse 7, because the Holy Spirit had to come. It's the only way He would come. For, for that to take place. It was a truth, and it was a truth that hurts. And Jesus says, it's better that I go. It's better to go to the cross. Question. Could Jesus have said, nah, I'm not going to go to the cross. I'll just hang out here for a while. He's God. He can do whatever He wants. But you and I would be dead and remain dead in our sin. It's necessary for Jesus to sacrifice Himself. It's necessary for Him to go and be our advocate. It's necessary for the Holy Spirit to come so that whosoever will will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever hears the Word of God can be saved. And the Holy Spirit has a completely different role than the Son who has a completely different role than the Father. Three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all have differing roles, one God, indivisible. And you say, Carrie, explain it to me. And I said, I can't. I can't. Because God is one. Indivisible. Yet present is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Different functions. 
The Father, the orchestrator. The Son, the creator and the advocate. The Holy Spirit, the one who empowers the believers. And is the down payment. How do I know that I'm saved? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And He's a constant reminder of that salvation. A constant reminder of the presence of God. Jesus would encourage them and with words and, and within this. And, and John, the writer of this book, would later write to a church that needed encouragement. In 1 John chapter 2, 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that, that's that henna clause, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, note, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Do you realize? Do you realize that you have a lawyer in heaven? I don't know how you feel about lawyers. But I know one that is good. And Jesus pleads the case on your behalf. If you sin, you have a lawyer in heaven. His name's Jesus. And what's he doing? Well, he's pleading your case to the Father. The Father looks and he says, yeah, he sinned. And Jesus says, yeah, but I covered him. My blood has covered him. He's forgiven within that. Satan comes to the Father and says, God, look at Carrie. Look what a dirty, rotten slug he is. And Jesus looks at Satan and says, nope, he's mine. Covered. You can bring your accusations but they're not going to stick. It's the advocate. The Holy Spirit would come at Pentecost and birth the church and release a transformational power, allowing us to be born again, giving us that power and that presence to reconnect with God within that. And it was promised by Jesus right before His ascension. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 8. Gathering together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait. For what the Father's promised, which He said, you've heard from Me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be My witnesses in both Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Even to Warren, Oregon. We would not be here if God had not given the promise to the disciples via the Holy Spirit and that gospel message go out. Think about how you can be part of that plan and sharing the gospel with your neighbors and your friends, your loved ones. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a job description here in verses 8 to 15, and we read them. He comes to convict of sin and reveal truth. John Wesley once said this, It's the Spirit that sheds the love of God abroad in the hearts, and the love of all mankind, thereby purifying the hearts from the love of the world, from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It is by Him that we are delivered from anger, pride, and all the vile, inordinate affections. What's Wesley saying? You know how your life has changed? Not because of you. Because of God in you, via the Holy Spirit. In growing up, my kids, whenever they would do something wrong, from time to time they would admit it. Most of the time they didn't, but from time to time they would. They would, what's wrong? And go to one of the kids, what's wrong with you? I got a Holy Spirit stomachache. <laughs> what did you do? They did something that they didn't think we knew about or something that we didn't know about. But they had the Holy Spirit stomachache. In other words, it was eating them up because they knew what was going on. Who does that? It's the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of that sin. That twinge that says, don't do it. And then when you do it, it's like, oh man, I, I, I can't hardly keep it in. The three parts of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world is to convict the world about the reality of sin. To convict the world about the reality of righteousness. And to convict the world about the, re the coming judgment. Three things. Holy Spirit convicts the world about the reality of sin. Through whom? Believers. That means believers need to be righteous. Because as He convicts the world of righteousness, there has to be a model of righteousness through us. And convicts the world of the coming judgment. 
It's amazing to me when you listen to the news and you, and you see all of these movies that are made about the end of the world and Armageddon and all these different things that are going to be happening. Where do they get that idea? Holy Spirit. Now, have they taken it all the way to the nth degree? Not yet. What should we do about it? Well, the more that we live a righteous life, the more the world is going to be convicted of sin because there's a contrast. In other words, we need to live that righteous life so that, so that the world can understand what sin is and judgment within this. The word convict, el anexo, literally means to expose and put to shame. Hmm. Do we see the world sin being exposed and put to shame today? Not so much. Why? Because I don't think believers are living the righteous lives that they should that, that reflects the righteousness of God so that there is a conviction of shame. We need to be able to convict of the bad things, the, the ungodly things, so that the redemptive work of God is seen. Because if I didn't know I was a sinner and that my sin was going to be judged, I wouldn't know that I need a Savior. Right? Because I think it's normal. And we need to challenge that within that. And we need to challenge some of the things that are going on in our world around us. We need to challenge the things that are going on in our school systems. And some of the things that are being taught as normal. Because they're not normal. If you were to go on to just the state of Oregon's education, promotion of certain lifestyles... There is an induction that is taking place amongst our kids. That's part of the education system. To condone something that is not normal as normal. I read some of it today and it made me sick. And we need to be able to, to reveal what truth is. And that's the Holy Spirit in through us. Not in a mean way, but in a, in a manner that, that sheds light in a very dark place within this. Paul would write to the church of Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, 11 to 13, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. What does that mean? That means that we need to expose the darkness. We need to call sin, sin. And we need to do that in love, because if people remain in sin, then they are going to end up in judgment. And the Holy Spirit in us empowers us to do that. So how do we do that? Well, first you pray. Please pray. Pray over whatever is going on. And don't make it your own political bias or, or agenda. But you pray for insight via the Holy Spirit. Say, God, show me what I should do about this. God, show me the truth. Give me your word that I can speak truth in love and reflect that light within this. The Holy Spirit is, is not... How should I say this? The Holy Spirit does not convene a spiritual court to argue what sin is because sin is already described. But what he does is he sheds light so that men would realize that sin is falling short of the perfection of God. And so when we're engaging with people, we need to do so. And, and so the disciples, when Jesus is gone, Jesus has been the light. And the disciples have been walking in the shadow of the light of Jesus. But now they need to be that light. Hence the church does. And he's handing off the rain saying, I'm going to empower you to be that light. And that work of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin. Verse 9, convict of sin. Why? Because they don't believe in me. Unbelief is a basic rejection of God. They need to know. You ever think about this? Jesus is going to leave the responsibility to be the light of the world in the hands of 11 normal people. 11 normal people. Fishermen tax collectors, zealots. And he spent three years training them. And he says, now you guys are on. 
Are they qualified in themselves? No. Empowered by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. That's why he says, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise, because that's where you'll get the power from. This, this unbelief brings condemnation, and, and, and that's what he's trying to avoid. In John 3.18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We are born in sin. We are born in unbelief. And, and we have to reveal the truth in order somebody can go from a state of unbelief into, in, into faith. And to convict the world about righteousness, this conviction of and not self-righteousness like the Pharisees, but what true righteousness is. The world has lost its moral compass and denies God. And as Christ followers, we need to reset that moral compass based on the truth of God's Word led by the Holy Spirit. We need to be able to do that and demonstrate that righteousness. What does righteousness look like? And in verse 11, excuse me, to convict the world about the reality of the coming judgment. I have some friends that have churches in Southern California. And at one point in time, these churches really spoke a lot about the end times. They spoke a lot about Jesus coming back. Are you ready? They spoke a lot about the rapture of the church and such things. And that group of churches went through a split. And one of the key elements of the split was this. A group of the churches said, we don't want to talk about end times because it's not a popular subject anymore. Is that scary? Very scary. Satan wants you not to be afraid of judgment. And so, if, you, if he removes people from being scared of being judged, or if he removes people's fear of any kind of law being enforced, or what we would call antinomialism, this idea of being against the law, then we have anarchy and chaos. Do we have a little bit of that in our world today? Sure. And so we need to tell people, look it, you've got to understand, that sin will kill you. When the Holy Spirit comes, though, He's also going to guide believers to the truth. And through the witness of the Word, to be able to bring us to that truth. So many times people say, well, I don't understand God's Word. I guarantee you this. If you pray, before you read, you'll learn. If you pray before you lead, God, open the eyes of my understanding. Let me see you. You will learn within this. You'll learn all about Jesus. You'll learn about God. You'll learn about all the, the, the ways to life. Jesus would say in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In the same manner that God guided Israel through the wilderness, the Holy Spirit guides the church in our wilderness today. We need the Holy Spirit. He's our personal teacher of the truth. What's interesting is this... It's not the Holy Spirit's concept of truth or our concept of truth. How do you avoid heresy? How do you avoid deviating from the truth? Only accept the things that God says from God. In John 17, Jesus would say, Father, I have given them your words. What you told me to say, I told them, the disciples. Here, Jesus says, what the Holy Spirit will give you is only what the Father gives Him. That's why we pray. People get such whacked ideas. I've heard them. Be filled by the Holy Spirit and bark like dogs. Be filled by the Holy Spirit and be drunk in the Spirit and walk around like you're an alcoholic. I've heard them. I've seen them. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Why? Because it's, it, it didn't come from God. It came from you. God's Word is not open to your interpretation. It's only delivered by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify the Father and to glorify Jesus. And so what He receives, He delivers. And by extension, that's what we should do. Paul did the same thing. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For what I received from the Lord, that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and so on, and then he gave it out. Paul learned from the Lord. God forbid that, that I ever get up or anybody ever gives up and says, you know, I got a brand new truth from you. You're not going to find it in the Bible, but this is a new truth. If that happens, please leave. Don't. It's, it's got to be God's word. That which you receive from the Lord within this. The Holy Spirit and Jesus didn't manufacture truth. They gave the truth of God. Why? Because they are the truth. And there is no fresh message that, that comes or this new revelation or this new apostolic period that some people would try to encounter. Everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness is right here in front of us. And the Holy Spirit will give us those insights. So we need to spend time with Him. The next section, verses 16 to 22. says Jesus goes on with this conversation and He says, And yet a little while you will no longer see Me, and again a little while then you will see Me. Some of His disciples said, Well, now what is He telling us? A little while you won't see Me, and in a little while you will see Me, and because I go to the Father. And they were asking, Well, what is this that He says? A little while. We don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you won't see me, and a little, again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. And whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that the child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one, note, will take your joy away from you. So Jesus moves on to this next phase, and he gives them this riddle. Kind of reminds me of like, you know, the old Batman. Riddle me this, Batman. I think if I was the disciples, I'd be going, what? I, what do you mean? Again, they're clueless. They're clueless on the, on the plan. But he's forewarning them. Again, a little while you'll see me and then you're going to be sad and a little while you won't. This little while refers to Jesus' departure. In a little while you won't see me. Why? Because I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be in the tomb. After that little while, you're going to see me again. I'll be raised from the dead. By extension, you'll see me for a little while, and then I'll be gone. The idea of little whiles is, is God's timeline. We've got to understand, God does not operate on man's timeline, which is a whole other study. But when he uses the word little while, often it's used in judgment. In, in Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord said to him, Name, name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu, the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Isaiah 10:25. Yet for a little while my indignation against you will be spent, and my anger will be directed for the destruction. So what does he mean? A little while. It means there's a start and a finish, and it's not going to be forever. What did you say? My absence from you is not going to be forever. But for a little while, you won't see me. When someone dies in the Lord, they're only gone for a little while in God's economy and time. Why? Because you will see them again if you have the Lord. It's only for a little while, a short period of time. And for that short period of time, you will have grief. And so within this, he's warning them. It's this idea of a not... Uh, uh, now and not yet. In three days after his death, Jesus will show back up and they'll have joy. And so Jesus is looking through the cross to the resurrection when he's giving this encouragement. In John 14, 1-4, he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Note, if I go and prepare a place for you, first conditional clause, yes, I will. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, 
and you know the way where I'm going. I'll only be gone a little while. And then I'll come and get you. And that's awesome to think about. That this, this separation is only for this little while. But as I said, the disciples were confused. What is he talking about? Why? Because they were trying to rationalize it in human understanding. Here's where faith comes in. Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it. Jesus said this is only going to be for a little while. I believe it. I don't understand it. I believe it. And it's in that faith that my mind must be settled. It's only for a little while. Suffering in this world, only for a little while. Sorrow in this world, only for a little while. Living in this body, only for a little while. We can endure it. Because the joy of the reunion is there. But in the grief, and they were grieving, it has a limited, uh, grief has a way of limiting our understanding. When we enter into grief, everything closes off, everything turns black, our capability to comprehend anything goes sideways. Even physiologically, I've been on calls where I've, I've been with people that are grieving that literally cannot stand up that lose bodily functions, that have no control because the grief is so great. And in that period of time, yeah, that's significant. But sorrow is only for a little while. And you'll make it through because you've got to look to the, the end. The disciples were struggling because they couldn't see the end and they didn't understand what he was saying. And Jesus recognized this and he even addresses their confusion in verse 19. He says, why are you deliberating together about this a little while? He says, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You're going to grieve when I'm put on the cross. The world's going to be happy. But your grief will be turned to joy. It's interesting how the tables get turned at the resurrection, isn't it? The Pharisees, when they heard that Jesus rose again, the soldiers that were there, they were like, ah! And the disciples were ecstatic within this. It was turned to joy. And so this period of sorrow is only for a short period of time. Imagine, and I can't imagine what they would have been seeing when they considered the cross. But to know that when Jesus shows up, all that sorrow is taken away. In heaven, there is no tears, there is no sorrow, there is no suffering. This promise is fulfilled in layers. In John 20, 20, it says, And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced that they saw the Lord. What were they doing? They were in the room grieving, scared. Little school kids. Woo! And he pops in the middle of the room, which freaked him out a little bit. He said, I'm here. And they said, he's alive. He's alive. The church, we exist in a time of suffering. The apostles exist in a time of suffering. But when we see Jesus face to face, when you leave this body and leave this world and you see Jesus face to face, then all of this stuff is going to go away. And you won't remember it. And he says, just like a woman that has a baby. I cannot say I understand that. I have never had a child. Praise God. I am. You women, I'm sorry. Watched three childbirths, four kids. Watched my wife have twins. She hated me within this. And Jesus uses this childbirth as an illustration. Immense pain. But I can tell you this, when that baby comes out and she's holding that, that little child, the joy. I don't know about forgetting all the pain. There was still a lot of soreness that was involved with it. But you look at it, and, and so you think about this. This woman in travail, 
Micah chapter 4, verses 9 through 10 says this of Israel. Now, why do you cry out loud? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? The agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Rise and labor and give pain. Daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth, for now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field in Babylon, and there you will be rescued. And the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. You're going to suffer for a little while, and then there's joy in the redemption. This joyful birth within this. And that's the truth for the church. Colossians chapter 1.18 says, He also is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. He himself will come to have first place in everything. You guys, it is not going to be like this forever. It's not. We're going to suffer for a bit, but the joy comes in the morning. And as verse 22 says, it's a joy that can never be taken away. Why? Why is it a joy that can never be taken away? Because what Jesus did at the cross can never be undone. Your salvation can never be undone. And that, that work of the cross and the power of the resurrection can never be undone or taken away. Satan might try, but it can never be taken away. It's a joy that remains within that. And you can, you'll never have to worry about losing that joy. Isaiah 66.14 says, Then when you'll see this, your heart will be glad, your bones will flourish like the new grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to His servants, and He will be indignant towards the enemies. He will have you in His hands, and He will deal with the enemies. I look forward to that day. I look forward to that day when the church is taken out, and we are with Jesus at heaven having a feast for seven years. We'll be up there at the table, and we'll be, we'll be having like in and out. And I'll finally be able to eat a 100 by 100 in and out. My sanctified imagination. While hell is breaking loose on earth. While judgment and wrath are dealing with Satan and the demons and all of that. You guys, that's a joy. Unbelievable. And the best part about it is when I get up, this body won't hurt anymore. It won't be, there won't be any sorrow. And I'll be sitting across the table with all my friends and people that have gone on to be with the Lord ahead of me. The reunion. Fantastic. And a joy will be new in the morning. In the presence. We have the presence now through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave us this promise. Matthew twenty-eight twenty teaching them to observe all things I command you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He wants us to know that joy. The last section here, in 23 to 33, he says, in that day, in that day of joy, in that day when everything is pulled together, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive so that your joy may be full. And in these things, I have spoken to you in figurative language. As an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that, that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again, going to the Father. Now his disciples said, well, lo, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative speech. And now we know that you know all things and you have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. <laughs> if I can insert a phrase here, bless their hearts. Jesus answered and said, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming. It's already come for you to be scattered each to his own home, to leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. 
In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. One of the things that Jesus proclaims in 23 all the way through 33 is this. There would come a time for the disciples when their communication with God would change. How? Jesus would leave. Holy Spirit would come. They would have direct connection. They wouldn't have to ask Jesus to ask the Father because they could ask the Father directly. Why? Because they could pray directly. After Jesus dies, what happened in the temple? What was torn? The veil. From bottom to top or top to bottom. And that veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies, giving man access to the Father. And Jesus says from now on, from this point forward, speaking of the cross, you'll have full access in that day. When I return to the Father, things in communication with God are going to change. And you're going to know and be taught straight from the Father, the words of the Father. First John 2, 20 and 27 says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but has His anointing teaching you about all things, and is true. It's not a lie, just as it's taught you, and abide in Him. The interesting thing is that that word in is it's a dative. In, in, the idea is it's a location. So in us is the truth of God via the Holy Spirit. Now, is he saying you don't have to go to church to be able to study God's Word? No, you still need to study God's Word. I spent a lot of time studying, and I can give it to you. But do you need that? No, not in the same way that the disciples needed Jesus. Do you realize that every one of you could do what I do? You could. You could spend time studying God's Word. God could teach you. And the same God that's teaching me to speak to you will teach you to speak to others. You can all preach. You can all teach. You can all interpret God's word and should within this. The disciples up until this time were dependent upon Jesus teaching them. And he's saying there's going to come a time when you are not going to be dependent on someone to teach you or interpret God's word for you. Do you remember a, a time in our history, in the world history, called the Dark Ages? Why were they so dark? Because the Word of God was taken away from man, and it was only through the church by which people would able, be able to receive the Word of God. It was kept in Latin and kept away from people. And they didn't have access to the Word of God. And so they became dependent upon people to teach them, and they would teach them the wrong things. The other thing that I think is important is this, that Jesus says, whatever you ask of the Father when this new communication relationship happens, if you ask in my name or under the authority of my name, or most specifically in alignment with who I am, whatever you ask, God will give you. Why? Because it's in alignment with who, who Jesus is within this. And Jesus had already trained the disciples make the requests known, to be able to pray to the Father to get them in that place. John 14, 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. Greater works or more, and we covered this, that these he will do. I go to the Father, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do also. So the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Why? Because it demonstrates the power of God. So, for example, when we pray for somebody who is in the hospital in ICU with a head injury, and we pray, God, we're asking for healing. Not our will, but your will be done. According to your will, may he be healed. And he is. Are we praying in alignment with the will of God? Sure we are. How do we know that? Because we see the healing. And then we can give God the glory. There are times that we pray for people and they're not healed. Does that mean that we're not praying in alignment with God's will? Not necessarily. We may not know the whole plan. I pray for people and they die. Probably don't want me coming and praying for you. 
But I've also prayed for people and watched miraculous stuff happen. I prayed for a guy one time that had a cancer the size of a silver dollar in his lung. Me and three other pastors. And I didn't believe that God was going to heal the guy. I'm thinking, man, you better get your affairs in order. Two days later, he shows up after going in for his MRI and they couldn't find it. Gone. He lived another 15 years and didn't die of cancer. We pray. We pray according to the will of God. Why? So that God would be glorified. Until now, or up until this time, they hadn't been praying accordingly. But one of the key elements, if you remember, is in what we would call the Lord's Prayer. What's the beginning line of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. That's the foundation of prayer. That we're, we're reaching up and praying God's will on earth as it already exists in heaven. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks to God for this is good in Christ. In other words, we need to be in continual communication with God and thereby having that joy that is full. You want, a, you want joy? Pray. You want fulfillment? Pray. Be in a constant communication with God and pray. And I can tell you this, it's not going to make sense until you get past the cross. Unbelievers pray, they're just throwing up wish lists. But when believers pray, they're, they're praying based on the completed work of Jesus at the cross. And within this, we understand this. We understand God's hand in this. God wants a relationship with us. He wants that open communication with us. And the mission of Jesus was to open that door. The Holy Spirit's job is to give us that hope and to keep praying and realize that they're not being abandoned. Now, the disciples got a little cocky. And they say, well, now you're speaking plainly and you're not using a figurative speech. Now we know that all things... You have no one, no one needs to question you. And Jesus says, no, you still don't know. Bless your heart. You still don't know. But you will. But then in verse 32, Jesus says, but the hour is now coming and already has come for you to be scattered. These are the last words that Jesus would say as Judas is getting ready to be able to come in. He said, the time has come. You're going to be scattered. You're going to go out. And you're going to go to your homes and I'm going to be left alone within this. But he doesn't leave them hopeless. We'll end with this down in verse 32. He says this. The hour has already come for you to be scattered, each one to his own home, and to leave me alone. What were they worried about in the beginning of the passage? Being left alone. But they're going to leave Jesus alone. But Jesus says what? I'm not alone. Why? Why? My Father is with me. My Father is with me. These things, what things? All of these things that He has spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Right now. Imagine these disciples. I've told you all of this stuff in this Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because turmoil is about to happen so that now you could have peace even in the scattering you could have peace in this world especially over the next three days you're going to have tribulation over the next three days they're going to be traumatized over the next three days they're going to think their world's come to an end and I've spoken these things to you because in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. And we find that on Resurrection Day. Let's pray. God, I thank You. I thank You that You give to us that confidence. To know that in this world, we're going to have tribulation, we're going to have hardship, we're going to have difficulties. We are going to suffer because the world hates us. Because they hated you. 
Yet, Lord, You have not left us alone. You've given us Your Spirit to walk with us. Lord Jesus, just as You were in the garden and alone, You were alone because the Father was with You. And as the church, we are not alone. The Holy Spirit is with us. And even better, we have complete access to You through prayer. You'll teach us, You'll guide us, You'll walk with us. I'm reminded of the shepherd's song. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And what? how does it end? And will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.